Baskin's emerging tech and venture capital practice is comprised of 80-plus dedicated legal professionals across the Canadian market. We're deeply involved in the startup ecosystem and have worked closely with founders from startup to scale to exit. Our team is a leading Canadian law firm for VC financings and tech M&A and act for many of the best-in-class startup and scale-up innovation-based companies and entrepreneurs in Canada. Given this experience, we understand market trends and can assist in guiding your company forward as you scale. We take a holistic and strategic approach to helping our clients achieve their goals and provide the full suite of services including corporate, corporate finance, M&A, commercial, IP, data and compliance, employment, tax and beyond. We are excited to help the next generation of unicorns. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Jessica Hodgson. Jessica is a managing partner at Moonshot Associates. With Moonshot Associates, you can tap into expert guidance and tailored solutions precisely when needed, allowing you to focus on innovation, profitability, and scaling your business. Whether it's developing a winning marketing strategy, optimizing your HR processes, fine-tuning your financial projections, or enhancing your product roadmap, they have you covered. In this episode, we discuss a wide range of HR concepts from hiring, the remote versus hybrid versus in-person ongoing debate, interviewing tips and tactics, why future CEOs are likely to come from HR roles, and much more. This is a masterclass in everything HR and was a very fun conversation with Jessica. So please enjoy my conversation with Jessica Hodgson. I'd love to start with your time at Ryerson. It seems like you've always been interested in the people side of business. You took organizational performance and talent uh at ryerson and you focus on that uh what got you why have you always been interested in that space it seems like even from early i uh grew up in a house with two hr executives so my my mom and my stepdad were both yeah executives in the hr function at banks when i was kind of like in middle school and in high school so sitting around the dinner table they would talk about their problems at work and you know, the meal might be over, or my sister would have taken off, and I would stay at the table and engage in the discussions and throw out ideas that I'm sure were terrible and uh, and got to kind of participate in those conversations from an early age and really learned through osmosis from them. Uh, and when I went to school, it was like obvious that I was going to graduate and go into HR. It just felt like the, the only move for me, um, and I couldn't wait to get started. And you worked at some really interesting and large companies, Accenture, KPMG, CIBC. What did you really learn from those larger organizations from like a HR talent side of things? What works really well? And also on the consulting side, I'm assuming you worked with organizations of different sizes too. So what kind of, what did you see any things that kind of were working well at different sizes of organizations, kind of worked well each and every time, or is everything very nuanced? 
when you when it comes to the I started my career in consulting, so client facing at Accenture. I think um a, a year there is like five years, lots of other places, and uh and like really learned how to work uh at in that environment, saw what an amazing customer service looks like, saw what a demanding client looks like and and learned from that. I think um also got to see so many different types of organizations, but there what I think I really took away from it was like this idea that when you get to this massive scale, you still have all these different parts of HR or talent that need to function, but it's really easy to become siloed and, and slow. Like there's, there's so much talent, there's so many resources, there's money, there's technology, but it starts getting like more and more complicated and slower and slower. Um, it always felt a little off to me that, you know, I had this cool idea. I was engaging with an interesting concept. I was throwing an idea around and then they'd be like, cool, that's a great idea. Um, put it on the roadmap for 2025. And I'm like, wait, what? I don't want to talk about it in like almost two years. I want to do it now. So it was such a breath of fresh air joining smaller organizations and like moving into the startup world that, you know, you get an idea and I could like literally do it the next day, get the chance to implement it, try it. It didn't work sunset it it was the flexibility and the speed of change was definitely the place for me when i ended up moving into into startup world and that's a nice segue because i wanted to ask about that so you're in kind of corporate toronto bay street and you go to hootsuite in vancouver in 2013 around that time um what spurred that move a from like toronto to vancouver but also i know you mentioned there just like that that speed of which you can you can work at an early stage company, but was there something else that kind of drove that? And I guess why Hootsuite? I've always been very intentional about my career and career path and career development and very driven. Um, the move to Vancouver from Toronto was personal. So I had grown up in Toronto. I went to a university in Toronto. I had been working on Bay Street. I'd never lived anywhere else and saw an opportunity to move to Vancouver and and took it for an adventure. Um, when I moved from Toronto to Vancouver, I was working for KPMG and uh, didn't know anybody in the city, was extremely lonely. So I ended up working at Suite because I was looking to like meet other young people. And it seemed like that's where the other young people were working. Um, so ended up falling into tech by accident. Um, the transition from like working, living and working in Toronto and then living and working in Vancouver, going from corporate to startup, it was so bumpy. I had such a hard time with the transition. The cultures in Toronto and Vancouver are really different. The cultures in in work are really different. And then um, I think that I needed to really adjust my style to be a little bit uh, more chill, both like outwardly how I looked and how I engaged with people and also how I worked on projects. Um, I needed to like infuse a little bit more fun and uh, learn how to operate in that environment because I think people were a bit put off by my, uh, I was a little aggressive, I think, when I first started at, at Hootsuite. What was Hootsuite like in 2013? Like obviously, you know, 10 years later now, it's it, it's in a much different stage, but 2013 was fairly early on in its journey. I guess, what was that like? Was it like, I'm sure a lot of those early people are now have started things or, or at other really exciting companies as well. I guess just talk to me a bit, a little bit about kind of like that energy and did that kind of get you maybe addicted to that kind of startup life? So, I mean, it, Kutsuit in 2013 was 
like peak tech ping pong table, fun, uh, dogs in the office kind of vibe. It was, it was so much fun. I was employee number like 330 something and, uh, and was on it the first HR business partner team that had existed. We're building out our HR team to like support a larger organization. Um, there was so much happening that we were growing at such a crazy rate. Like by the time I left two years later, we were a thousand people. It would just like almost tripled in size and everything. Like someone would come and ask me, oh, do we have like a professional development template? I go back to my team and they'd be like, no. And they'd be like, okay, I guess I'll build it. <laughs> so it's, um, it definitely like got me addicted to the speed, the pace, the excitement of working in a startup. I think it also got me really excited about like a very human centric HR model. That is like, I didn't have policies to lean back on. If someone asked me for something or they asked our manager for something, I couldn't just say like, read the manual. And that's what the answer is. We had to create responses and deal with situations kind of as they came up and in a really human way. So in a, in an organization that's growing that quickly, you know, you have people that have been there since you were 10 employees and they're now in leadership roles and maybe they're not the right person. What gets you from zero to one doesn't necessarily get you from one to two. So have really human conversations with them about with kindness, like you might not be the right person to lead this team anymore. We might have to bring someone else on top of you. What does that mean for you? How do you feel about that? What's your career progression look like from here? Um, it was, it really like was transformational for me in how I deal with people uh, because it is ultimately human um, and not just policies and paper. I'm curious your thoughts on, especially from the HR perspective and that scaling from 300 to roughly 1,000. And a lot of organizations have been doing that over the last few years. Maybe that mindset has shifted a little bit over the last year, 18 months. I guess, what are some ways that if you are going to scale that quickly, or even maybe just like slightly above that level, but still a, a rapid growth, what are some things you can really do, maybe high level, whether you're like a founder, uh, talent or HR leader to make that a, a little bit less bumpy? I think people underestimate how much time and energy goes into growing that quickly. So can you afford it? Like from a capital perspective, can you afford to have that many people on your headcount? Payroll um, is one thing, but like, can you afford it from a time perspective and, a, and an emotional investment perspective is another. So I think like one thing that I've seen um, go wrong, go sideways in, in rapid growth is that, that like all I have to do is onboard these people. All I need to do is like train them in order for them to become effective. Like you kind of forget about the rest of your team. You add one new person and you have a new team. You need to establish culture and dynamics. Those people need attention. You like, you need to think about the organization as an interconnected organism and one new person is going to impact other places. So I think managers, uh, when they're growing quickly, need to pay attention to like, how much time and energy do I have to fostering this new environment? And like, can my team afford from a resource perspective to like add in more bodies um, and how that's going to change our systems processes and, and the dynamics on the team so that we can work together productively. After Hootsuite, you worked at some other interesting companies, Fatigue Science, later Vin Automotive. 
did you find similarities between these companies? Again, every every company, every stage is very nuanced. But were there any things, any dots you could connect of like, hey, like this is a great strategy for a company that's going from like a seed to series A, B, C, beyond? Um, just kind of curious if there was any connective there, or is it really taking that nuanced approach? Hey, this company is different. This culture is different. And we need to do a whole different. Plan. I think it's like right in between. I think that there is some fundamentals that I have carried through each of those experiences. So, you know, part of what is unique about my experience is having started in large organizations and seeing what uh, good looks like at scale, what top the top programs would look like or it's kind of tip of the spear HR work looks like. And then how do we sort of like make the cheap and cheerful version that will scale with the organization and grow as the organization grows. So there's like some foundational stuff that I've brought in um, to each organization that I've worked with, but then there is so much nuance uh, depending on what the leadership team looks like, their um, understanding of the people space, their appetite for people programs, um, how much they want to spend on it. There's just like so much nuance there. I think one of the things that is also unique or sorry that is across those all of those different organizations has been a, a humility from leaders perspectives i've been so blessed to work with amazing leaders that are like i'm so glad you're here i don't know what the answer is please can you help me um and willing to part like really partner with me as as their head of hr uh in developing not just their people programs but also their business like uh i think that there's something really amazing about a founder or CEO that is young, hungry, excited about what's next. And they're like, I need to bring in all these experts around me that are going to help me build the best, the best path forward. I'm curious your opinion on it, because uh, this is just kind of how I feel. But early stage companies, if I'm talking to a founder, it's all focused on talent. OK, what's that initial team? What should that look like? And then if you go later stage. And, you know, maybe a quote unquote successful company, if I'm talking to that founder, they're, they're mentioning it's all about culture. It's all about people. So like that transcends every stage. But then in my opinion, I find in maybe a lot of different organizations or organizations in general, sometimes HR and people, maybe they don't have that seat at the table when it comes to like those main discussions around the business. I guess, why do you feel like there's a disconnect there between people always talking about talent at every different stage and maybe not maybe not putting an emphasis on it when it comes to decision making? It's a great topic that like we could spend a whole hour on just that. Um, I think that there is there is a sort of misconception that HR is employment agreement policy benefit, um, like contracts, it's very transactional. And the there is a shift, I think, especially since like 2020, I think the pandemic played a part in this, um, that your head of HR or your HR leader is a strategic advisor. They are that uh, they are such a close uh, best friend to the CEO or the co-founders as they're making decisions because all problems are people problems. I just was at a conference. Uh, I was at a summit a couple of days ago where I saw a quote from one of the early heads of engineering from Google. And he was saying like, engineering is easy, people are hard. Um, and I think that 
leaders who get that, who understand that like all business problems are people problems and are willing to look at it through that lens have a higher rate of success. They have a higher probability of turning their business into something amazing because especially in like a SaaS business, that is your, that's your asset is your people. You have nothing else. You have no, maybe you have like a building, probably not. You've got, you've got people and like what those people produce and that's it. I love that, that all problems are people problems. With your work with like Moonshot, what you're doing now, and I guess we could dive into, to, to why you started that and, and what the focus is, but I guess what are some common problems that you're seeing? You know, you're working with founders at an early stage. Like, what are some common things that you're working through? That I think it's like related to the to the last question, which is typically people underinvest in this area. Yeah. Like, all problems are people problems. Everyone's a human, so they feel like they could could do human resources. Um, so I think. As part of why my business partner and I, Jeremy, our business partner, Jeremy, and I started Moonshot was because I think it's like expensive to bring on a cost center like HR. Um, and it's hard to see the return on that investment in like hard dollars and cents. Usually companies wait too long and end up with problems, particularly around culture that are kind of hard to undo. So they like they make decisions that feel small at the time and they're quick because an organization that is young needs so much love. It needs so much attention. You're making decisions all the time. It's moving so fast. I think that you make decisions and you make another decision and you make another decision and you end up creating a culture. It becomes like a life of its own by accident if you're not looking at it through the lens of like, what is the behavior that we're incenting? What is the behavior that we're allowing? that we're kind of encouraging to grow. Um, and and sometimes you have to go back and like fix some of that, fix those maybe bad habits that have that have started. Um, that I think it would it would benefit organizations to reach out to somebody, have an advisor, even if it's just like a mentor or a board member that has experience in these things, to run ideas by earlier earlier than say, like usually if they're on series A that they get serious about bringing in a head of HR and someone that has some like strategic chops and it behooves them to have that talent earlier. So Jeremy and I had a conversation about like, could we work with these earlier stage organizations before they can afford a VP of HR or a CPO um, and and give them that leg up so that they're not looking at it at, at a too late of a stage. What does culture mean to you? Like Obviously, some companies will write down some of their values, which I think is is obviously important. Um, some people will maybe put some pizza out in the lunchroom to try and build culture. Like, I, I guess, what are some fundamentals that you think, like, actually build culture? What does culture mean to you? Is it a bit of, you know, a written component and values plus also, like, what you're doing every single day? I just, what does it mean to you? I feel like... I often say this to CEOs is that culture is what you reward. And that might not necessarily be through financial rewards, right? Like bonuses, but sometimes it is what you reward and also the worst behavior that you'll tolerate. So it it is for sure. I think it's important to outline those values. Uh, I think it's important to have expectations written down and then evaluate people on those expectations. Um, but I do think that it is more about the behavior that is allowed and encouraged in your organization. So 
I'll give you an example. We had values at Hootsuite. I couldn't tell you what they are right now, but Ryan Holmes, when I was there, would say BSU, blow shit up constantly. It was like hashtag BSU was on everything. It was so in, it was so embedded in the culture. And I knew I never really worked directly with Ryan. I never had much exposure to him. But I knew that if I was making decisions in my day-to-day work, that if I had the option between something that was safe and something that was disruptive and and kind of like a little bit controversial, I, I'm going to choose the controversial and and more disruptive option because that's what Ryan would want because he told us over and over again and it was rewarded over and over again. The people that were like BSUing were getting called out at town halls and it was it was the behavior that was rewarded all the time rather than, you know, some words that were on a wall that di- I didn't really feel deeply connected to. I like that framework of reward and, and tolerate. I'm curious, how do you scale culture? Like you, you mentioned there kind of Ryan and like what you can reward, what you can tolerate. Um, but how do you really scale that when maybe the founder, again, you, you get up to like 300, 400, 500,000 people. Um, are you trying to disseminate that through the organization down to like each manager or, or lead, I guess, how do you scale that? And obviously it's not always a perfect science, but how can you make that at least pretty good? Like the idea, and I like it at smaller organizations as well, of having values and expectations around people or how people are behaving with each other. There's lots of different ways that you can achieve success. And then having real life examples of what that looks like so that people can see what good means. Um, so, you know, having like a kudos channel in Slack for a smaller organization, having a kudos channel in Slack and then tying each kudo being tied to uh, a value. Something like that helps people see what's rewarded and like what it looks like to really engage in those behaviors. And then as you get bigger and you develop like robust performance management programs, then having kind of a two-sided performance management program, one that is based on, you know, your OKRs or your objectives or your sales targets. And then another side that's like on how you did it and how you made the people around you feel. Did you enable your the rest of your team for success? Whatever is important to you and your organization and what you're trying to build, you're sort of evaluating people on that so that you are, you know, delivering, but you're delivering in a way that is in line with the values and incenting people to act the way that you want people to act and treat each other at your organization. I like to chat about hiring. And I, you know, again, this is where Moonshot comes in with an advantage. But I saw some chart recently of like, you know, like the top US tech companies, uh, startups and, you know, what their first 10 hires were. And it was all developers and, and product people. When should someone hire their first HR person, whether that's like a leader or like whatever level they are in the organization. And I guess second part to that question would just be kind of hiring in general. When is it a good time to hire someone? When does it make sense? Is it when the problem is, uh, you know, maybe someone spent like working on five different things and they can split that up or like it makes sense. Hey, they'll be able to do 40 hours a week and I can actually like hire someone for that. I guess, when should you hire your first HR person and what are maybe some ground rules around hiring in general? I talked a little bit earlier about how usually organizations wait too late to invest in HR. I don't think you need an HR person right off the bat. I think, you know, if if your general policy is like, be cool and 
and, you know, do your best work and you're all sitting in one room and you can evaluate that, like you get feedback at the moment of how someone is behaving, you can kind of like be the culture steward. You're not really getting it. You probably need a lawyer to like draft your legal, con your employment contracts. But otherwise, you don't have real like real needs in that area at an early stage. I think um, earlier than they, than typically organizations reach out to an HR person is better. I also think that like designing a program with someone like myself um, earlier on and creating a flexible and more affordable solution to having some like strategic conversations and then supplementing that with a more junior person early on is a really great strategy. So bringing in someone who's like kind of fresh out of school or a bit more junior that can also do like I often see kind of an office manager HR hybrid role or executive assistant HR hybrid role. That's how they typically start. I love that model. I do think that people often learn by making a ton of mistakes and like building the wrong thing. Um, so finding someone that is a strategic advisor that you can reach out to to ask those questions to or that that more junior person can rely on. Um, for the design and then the more junior person can execute is like a beautiful model. I wish every startup had that, that set up. You mentioned the human element earlier and, you know, maybe not the same person can go zero, uh, from zero to one to one to two or one to many. How do you think about that from an HR perspective with the human element? Um, yeah, just, just really curious of your thoughts on like, okay, Maybe someone can take us to here and they're not the great fit anymore. What do you do with that person? Is there is, you know, again, every business is nuanced, every business is different. But are there some things that you can fundamentally do or conversations you can have to make that slightly easier? I feel really strongly that particularly founders feel a strong need, especially today, feel a strong need to be nice to be like friends with the people that work with them. And I think that's wonderful. It's part of what I love about working at, at smaller organizations is I do feel really close to the people that I work with. But I think like nice and kind are two different things. And so if someone is not the right fit anymore for your business, it happens all the time. It's like the, the organization, I often tell leaders, you're getting a promotion every six months that this, that this business doesn't go under if you're scaling. So sometimes people can't keep up with the speed of growth. It's, it absolutely happens. Or they have a mind that is built for jack of all trades. And as you get bigger, you have to specialize more. That's hard. Like they're probably not the right person. I think that honest conversations about, you know, career path and career development, where do you want to head? What's your, what's your ideal role? What's your ideal career path? I think having those conversations early and often with your team and then when it's clear that someone isn't the right fit, then exiting them from the organization quicker rather than slower is better for the organization and it's better for the person. If you do it in a way that is like humane, that is at, at its core out of respect and like appreciation for that person, acknowledging everything that they've done to gauge that point, but also saying like, I want to thank you for everything you've done, but I'm also going to send you on your way because when people are not in a role that is good for them, that feels bad. Like it does not feel good to stay somewhere where you're not going to be successful. So being honest so that it's not a surprise, but like making those decisions swiftly, I think is the most human and kind thing that you can do. What are your thoughts on promotion 
versus bringing like an expertise from the outside. I guess there's risks to both. Like with the promotion, is it is this person able to do it? Maybe they haven't done it before, but you know, maybe a maybe a lower salary or a bit cheaper. Or hey, like we know they're a good culture fit. Uh, but on the other side, it's hey, this expertise, this person's done it two, three times, and they can clearly get us to where we want to be. What are your thoughts there, and what are some considerations people should have? I believe really strongly that it depends on the whole organization as a unit. So I am the kind of HR person who, when I join an organization, I'm like, let me see the product. Let me meet with your product manager. Let me under, let me sit on a, on a sales call. Like I need to understand the business deeply in order to support the business deeply. So I think that the kinds of conversations that I'll have with a leader about that is, you know, you can do that a little bit, like growing from the inside and developing someone like, hey, do you have this skill set? Do you know how to teach someone to do this? If not, they may need to go get a mentor outside the organization who's an expert in that. They're going to have to have a really strong development plan. You have to take time and energy to manage that and support them. Can you afford to do that from a resource perspective, from a time perspective? And then like, how much are you doing it, right? If you have a philosophy of growing from within and you've got like four directors underneath you that are all developed, that's going to be a bit of a mess. Like you might need to balance one developing leader with one tenured leader to like show what good looks like. They can help you with mentoring the rest of the team. It is like a dance of the resources that you have available, the energy, the experience, and and how do those all fit together so that you're not over-indexing on one and under-indexing on the other? I feel like this is a very hotly contested debate, but what are your thoughts on remote, hybrid, in-person? I have a perspective that whatever works for the organization kind of works, but do you think there are ways to do it properly, incorrectly, different stages? Like, What's your opinion on that? It's so hotly contested. It's everybody's talking about it and everybody wants like an answer. Um, and I do feel, especially at early stage organizations where I, when I'm supporting, for example, on compensation at an early stage organization, like I can't compete with the Amazons, the Facebooks, the Googles of the world. And I need to index on impact and community in order to, from a value perspective, in order to bring in those, those great candidates. And it's really hard to build that community and that impact when everyone is sitting in their own house. Um, I mean, you know, being in an office, you do get to connect with people. You have ad hoc conversations. You learn more. I get to listen to two product people have a discussion about what our products can do and not do. I learn a ton in those, like being in earshot of that conversation that I wouldn't at home. So I'm not like fully remote all the way. I do think that there is value to people being in the office together. Um, but I can tell you mandating people to come back into the office is a recipe for culture disaster. You're going to like isolate your team. You're going to make them really mad. Um, I think that like designing a program that makes sense for your organization, um, for your business, and giving people flexibility, allowing them to design their work life around their home life and uh, and things outside of work is pretty key. And then I I strongly believe that like incenting, making your office 
a place that people want to be, that it's worth the headache of like putting on real pants and taking the subway or driving for an hour. Like it needs to be worth it. So are there going to be other people there? Am I just going to go into the office and like take video calls from a meeting, meeting room all day? Like that's not a good use of my time. But am I going to connect with people and learn something and become better at my job for being there? Then like, absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to come in. I love that. I love the focus on like, what are people going to be doing once they arrive? Um, I'd like to get your opinion too on, on HR tech. And it doesn't always have to be, okay, like HR software it could be the utilization of a communication platform like Slack or using Google Meet or, 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 or just anything to help scale the organization. I guess, what are your thoughts on, you know, what, when should you bring in certain tech? How should they be used? Um, and, you know, is there just maybe can you just implement processes before the need to, you know, spend a bunch of money on all these tools? HR tech is like such a gigantic industry. It is a specialization in itself in the field. There's people who are like just do HR tech. Um, I would not call myself that, but I do feel like there are some really easy, low cost, low lift platforms that will as a, as a leadership team or a, a founder make your life easier. So like there's some HRAS systems, which is, stands for HR information system. It's kind of like a, a repository really at the heart of it. It's a repository for all your HR documentation and time off policies. But then you can, as you scale, it's nice to have that all in one place. And as you scale, you can turn on different modules. So you can add in a performance module. They usually have like pretty easy, nice UX um, recruitment modules to like have a, one place where everyone can go. So I really like adding in an HRIF as soon as possible in an organization because it trains good habits from the beginning. You don't have someone like me coming in when you're 50 people and like digging around in Google Drive holders for contracts. It's all in one place and it's clean and you know it's good. Um, and you also like encourage people to go into one system and that's their source of truth for all their people needs. Um, and then there's so many cool systems on top of that that are focused on productivity. Uh, one that I really love is Lattice. So it is a performance management software. It takes all of the like sending documents back and forth out but you can also track you can also document your one-on-one in there and it will sync with your google calendar you can take notes the other person will be able to see it so you know your hr person is going to tell you to document performance stuff and you'll like roll your eyes at that but if you have a system in place like lattice which makes it really easy for people then you take away the frustration or the the sort of barrier of like oh, i have to go open up a document i have to send an awkward email it's already there. You can you can just write it down. They can also then do career passing. And there's so many cool ways that you can just do a little bit in HR tech. And then for an extra two bucks a month per user, add on another layer and another layer as you grow and scale. How do you see HR evolving over the next few years? Like, obviously, chief people officer is a title I see more and more and more at every large and successful company, uh, organizations. Uh, um, I guess just yeah. What are your what are your thoughts on where's HR evolving? Uh, what are some things to watch out for? I guess I'm so excited about this because I do believe that now HR is a strategic business partner to the leadership team, 
I believe that like being a CEO or a, a founder or a co-founder is an extremely lonely job. So everyone's turning to you all day being like, this just hit the fan. What do we do? What it, like this broke? What do we do? This customer is mad. What do we do? I think it's an incredibly lonely, isolating spot to be. And your HR person is an expert at tact, at confidentiality. Um, and if they are the type of partner who can see your business the same way you do from the top and partner with each one of your members of the executive team to understand what's happening in each of their business, they can actually offer you an insight that your other strategic partners, like maybe your CFO or your COO, they might not be able to give you. So I think that that's starting to happen today. I think that the best HR leaders are the ones who are deeply enmeshed in the business and can also see it as the as the sort of complex organism that it is and can offer you insight from that perspective. Uh, I think that the the pipeline, what I'm really excited about in the next five years is to see previous heads of HR moving into CEO, CEO roles. Like I said, like, all, all problems are people problems. And, you know, I used to just be like a CFO or CRO or a COO. That would be like the next in line for a CEO, CEO role. And I think that there, you'll see more head of HR is getting tapped on the shoulder for CEO roles um, in the future. One of the biggest predictors of success for a startup is the, the success of their executive team the connection, uh, the stability, the relationships, the trust, that's a huge contributor to organizational success. And like, who's better at that than your head of HR? When you're interviewing, like, again, like you said, all problems are people problems. How do you really maybe suss that out, whether you're hiring or maybe Pearson's already in, in the organization? How do you really deal with problems when they arise with people? Like, is uh, should you have an open forum? Should, you know, the maybe the CEO or the leader talk to that person, both people individually and then come up with a solution? How do you really think about people problems and like how do how do you solve those? And again, it's not always going to be perfect, but what are some things that could work well there? I have some guiding principles around this, um, which have served me well. They're not all perfect. <laughs> um, but I think first is really coming from a place of curiosity all the time, having the most generous interpretation of someone's behavior always in the back of my mind or the front of my mind when I'm interacting with someone. So when someone comes to me and tells me about a people problem in the first instance, I have to fight. Obviously, we're all filled with bias um, and assumptions. I have to fight really hard to like tamp those down and just listen with a curious mind to what happened. And remember that I'm hearing about just one side of a, a situation. I do have a pretty hard and fast rule about not sharing feedback on behalf of other on behalf of other people. So, for example, if there's a, a disconnect or or some sort of conflict between two people, what I like to do is be the safe space for each of those people and sort of say like say the ugly part to me say exactly what's on your heart in a safe space and, and know that I won't repeat anything that you've said. And then let's figure out a way together to tactically share that information in a way that's going to move this problem forward rather than you go say the ugly part to them and then the situation becomes inflamed or like 
uh, ends up being a bigger mess than it would have been. So like, how can, how can I support you through dealing with the situation to a desirable outcome? And then they go have that conversation between the two of them. And hopefully with some of my guidance and with them getting the parts that they needed to say off of their chest, they're able to be more like level-headed and consider the other person's perspective and land in a place that's going to work for everybody. Just another kind of hiring question. Like, let's say you narrowed it down to two candidates and one was, uh, you know, maybe had more experience, but the other had more, you know, maybe let's say like you thought they could scale better or there's more growth potential there. What are you, what are you really optimizing for when, when you're hiring? What's that, what's that balancing act for you between like ability and skill and like, um, experience? I think there's like an aspect of it that is, have they done this before that is worth something for sure, especially in a startup, the having people around that are like cool headed and are like can face a problem and go, I've seen this before. Don't worry about it. I got you. Like that is incredibly useful for a CEO. I'm realistic about the fact that like we probably can't afford to fill our roster with A players from, you know, all the hottest companies in town. So again, it's a balance of how much can we afford to spend and are we looking for somebody who's done this before or can I see something in them that is maybe analogous? They've done something like this before. I like to focus on competency that they've developed in other organizations to say like maybe they haven't done this exact thing, but they have they have some experience that will help them do the thing that we need done. A lot of it is culture and like attitude. And then one thing for me that I've focused on a ton, especially hiring for like heads of. So the first person to do something, the only person to do something in an organization, which happens a ton in, in startups or scale ups, is do they, are they resourceful? Do they have access to what they will need when we're growing? So I've been head of HR for a couple of different companies. And of course, I don't, I haven't seen every situation. I haven't seen it all play out. There's always something surprising me, but I do have a network of people that I can reach out to that when, when I find something that I don't know how to deal with, I can call them and ask them. And like, does I look for that resourcefulness in this environment? Are they going to go find the answers or are they going to go like, I don't know, are they going to guess and it's going to be wrong? Like, are they going to be able to go figure out and ask the right questions of the right people to get to the right answer? I'd love to jump into the quick fire round and would love to know your favorite book. And if it's hard to pick a favorite, maybe just something you're currently reading. My favorite like work book or HR book, I read a really long time ago, but it still sticks with me. It's called Work Rules. It's by Lachlan Bach. He was an early, I think maybe the first head of people for Google um, early days. And talk. the book talks about designing Google's people programs and how he went about doing that. I think that the thing that I still carry with me from that book, so I can save listeners the read, is uh, it's really it's really good. But one the major thing that still sticks with me is the idea that how you show up for people when it's good. So like ping pong tables and pizza and celebrations and like summits or offsite 
that's all like nice. People like that. But how you treat them when things go bad, when they're down and out, really is the thing that creates loyalty and trust with your employees. So the other thing is, yes, you have to develop policies, but those policies are like, they're like dotted lines. They're not solid. And you can always give more. You can always like support people. You can always make exceptions to policies so that you can be there for someone. Say like their partner is diagnosed with a, with a, a illness and your time off policy is like you get three paid sick days. That doesn't seem like enough, you know, like to adjust like to adjust to something that big. And in the book, he talks about, you know, you can you can do more for people when they're going through something difficult and you'll gain so much in engagement and loyalty from that so much more than you will from like pizza lunches or or even like parties and that kind of thing. What are you most excited about in the next year, personally, as well as professionally? Personally, I've got two little kids. Uh, I feel like everybody answers this question this way. They have kids. I'm I just like watching them grow, watching them become little people is like, is such a, an amazing thing. And uh, they're six and three. And I feel like they're growing and learning so fast and becoming like these little people that I get to hang out with. So I'm excited to see what they do and how they change and grow in the next year. Um, professionally, we've talked a lot about like the, in this conversation about the fact that HR isn't a priority for businesses because it is expensive and it costs money. And so businesses are hesitant to invest in a big way early on. And Jeremy and I are talking a lot about how we can support, Jeremy works on marketing and I work on HR, talking a lot about how Moonshot can support early stage founders with like setting up these foundational marketing or HR principles in a really cost-effective way. So that's a conversation that we're engaging in right now. I'm having a ton of fun, like rolling that idea around and thinking about how we can support early stage founders that maybe can't even afford to hire us, but want access to that information and some of our thinking and learning that we've gained over the last like 20 years in our careers. Um, and I think that's going to be really fun to, to be able to provide some, some help to those people. Last question from me before I open up the mic, but how do you deal with hard times, uh, do you, do you meditate? Uh, are you into fitness? Like what stuff really has helped you throughout your career? Uh, and also being a parent as well. How do you deal with hard times? I think part of it is like getting ahead of hard times. So taking care of myself, it's really hard to take care of yourself when you are, you know, in a demanding career and you've got two young kids and it's, it's a lot. So uh, definitely working out is like a major priority for me. It's something that I spent a lot of time focusing on. I think also giving myself permission to say like it doesn't just because something doesn't fit into a professional sphere or a family sphere, it doesn't mean it's not valuable. So I'm in Toronto right now. My kids are back in BC um, and that's great. I'm like totally filling up my community cup by hanging out with my friends and, um, and you know, working hard. That's wonderful for me. So giving myself permission to like do things that I love um, and then also like when things do go sideways or if something doesn't work out, I, starting your own business, I've been rejected more in the last eight months than I've ever been rejected in my life. It has like, I've developed a resiliency I did not know that I had within me. Um, and the, the phrase, if not this, then something better, just like plays on repeat in my head, knowing that like I'm bringing something valuable to the table. I have a point of view that matters. And if that's not something that is going to know, 
speaking on a panel or if somebody tells me no, then I, it's just reminding myself like that wasn't it. And the next thing that comes up will be. And if not, that's been something better. I'd just like to open up the mic to you. You know, fair amount of founders, investors, especially Canadian focused, uh, listen to the podcast. So, um, you know, maybe like what is Moonshot focused on? Who's a good fit for you? Uh, you know, what are some things that you could help them with? I guess just kind of open mic, just to ch chat about the business. Definitely. So Moonshot Associates was founded by um, by myself and Jeremy. We worked together when we were at Venn and, uh, and both found ourselves on the job market at the same time and said, like, I think that we have something valuable to offer in the marketplace. We want to share. We've both been working in tech um, as like heads of our functions for, you know, 10 years each. And we're like, we have something that we really want to share with the market. There's something about waiting too long to bring in that strategic advisor in that area. And we'd love to give people access to that sooner. So we offer fractional services so we can come and actually join your business as the head of your function, um, say for like two days a week or three days a week um, and like live within your business, but it's not a full-time commitment. Um, or we can help with like program design. So you have a problem that you need solved or you're trying to think about like, how do I build out my HR program, my marketing program? Where should I invest? Um, we can work with businesses on a, a short-term basis to kind of build it out and then have somebody else execute it. Um, really is like a flexible solution. We know that for most tech businesses that their headcount is their biggest spend um, by, by a long shot and that boards and investors are going to be sensitive to adding big numbers onto that. And so it's a nice flexible way of, of giving you insight and strategic advice and some guidance without having to bring someone on full time. Um, our, our target demographic is kind of like seed to series. By the time you've got a series B, you should probably have like a VP HR, a VP marketing in place. But seed to end of series A is a great time to have us on board, um, either, you know, to work directly with a CEO or to even advise someone more junior and support them as a resource um, that is the one that's doing the executing. That's awesome. And we'll make sure to link everything in the, in the episode description there so people can get to your site and, and contact info quicker. Jessica, it's been a lot of fun. I appreciate all the insights into HR, best practices, where things are going. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me, Evan. I love talking about this and uh, and I also love listening to your podcast. So what a wonderful way to connect those two things. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.